Hello and welcome to the Food Connections podcast, the podcast that connects you with the food you eat. I'm Dr. Laura Wynas, a registered nutritionist and one of Scotland's regional food tourism ambassadors. I'm interested in all things related to food and nutrition, and I love learning more about the food we eat, how it's made, and getting to know the people involved in making our food. In this episode, I'm joined by James McSween, Managing Director of McSween of Edinburgh. McSween of Edinburgh has been at the forefront of Scotland's national dish, haggis, for almost 70 years, and the business now has a turnover of 6 million and employs 60 staff. James started work as a butcher in 1992, and not long after, he helped the business move out of high street butchery retailing in 1996, when McSween's built the world's first haggis facility. They initially focused their energy purely on manufacturing and wholesaling, and in the last 10 years, McSween's have continually innovated their brand and products. They were the first manufacturer ever to win three gold stars from the Guild of Fine Foods for their traditional haggis, and they also invented the world's first vegetarian haggis. They are a much-loved haggis brand, and James is clearly very passionate about haggis and working in the haggis industry. I hope you enjoy this episode as James shares some fascinating facts about haggis and helps bust some haggis myths. Welcome, James McSween, to the Food Connections podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm very well, and thank you very much for inviting me along, and I'm excited about this session. Brilliant. Well, let's get started, because there's so much to learn about haggis, I think. Do you want to start with your background in the kind of family business of McSween and how it all started? Yes. So we are a third-generation family business, founded in 1953 by my grandfather. We started off as butchers originally, back in the day. My great, no, not my great-grandfather, my grandfather, stumbled upon the meat industry. After leaving school, he did an apprenticeship in London Links and Fife as a bookkeeper or a clerk in a butcher shop, but he was wanting to go into finance. And those were the days where you lived with your employer, you paid him digs, you lived in his house, and you served your apprenticeship. So that's what he did when he was a very young boy. You know, the McSweens are originally from Skye. We're obviously now an Edinburgh family, but my great-grandfather was a crofter in Skye and they, they'd had enough of being crofters and moved to Rathal, which is where they first settled after leaving Skye. Charlie, who founded the business, did his apprenticeship in Fife. And then after that, he moved back to Edinburgh and got a job in a butcher shop. And that was a shop called Oars on George Street. And he was there till the very end. Mr. Orr unfortunately died. His daughter didn't want to run the business after her father passing. And she sold the property to the Southern and Scottish Electricity Board, which was a retail shop until, oh, I think the 90s. And it's now it's now a bar. It's right next to the old Roxburgh Hotel. And that was a meat emporium. It was an incredible place. I've seen pictures of it. It was a very big operation. They had their own fleet of vans. They had their own engineers that serviced the vans. They slaughtered their animals live when they came in on down the back of Rose Street. And even in those days, Mr. Orr was very entrepreneurial and, and forward-sighted, and he had segregation of products. So cooked meat was away from raw meat, and there was a deli counter, and there was a cheese counter, and they were all separate parts of the shop. As I said, Mr. Orr passed. The business stopped trading. The property got sold. And my grandfather and Mrs. Goodrum, that was Mr. Orr's daughter, talked about him setting up on his own because at one point he was just going to look for another manager's job because by the time he left Orr's, he was the shop manager. So he was you know, a real kingpin in the, the Orr's business. 
And with a bit of persuading, he opened up a small retail shop in Brunswick Place, which uh, was in 1953, still in the middle of rationing. So there was some real challenges in setting up a business in the day. And then, you know, very quickly, we, we started to emerge as a, a leading butcher, game dealer and poulterer in the Edinburgh area and the, and the business expanded quite quickly. But that's a, a real snapshot of the early days of us becoming established as a family business. We're now in the third generation. My dad then joined when he was 16 going on 17. And there has been other family in the business. I've worked with two of my three sisters at various times over the years. I've been in the business 30 years. I formally trained in outdoor education and physical education and then decided I wanted to keep my hobbies as hobbies, or my father persuaded me to keep my hobbies as hobbies. And then I retrained in business and food manufacturing once I joined. And then I was instrumental in, in getting the business to move site to our purpose-built haggis factory, which is in Lone Head, which we've called home since 1996. You know, that's nearly 70 years of history within a few minutes because we're about to turn 70 year olds next year and uh, so a big year then for yeah a, bit, a, big, a, a big year absolutely and so when did the haggis making start we've always been haggis makers technically any butcher worth their salt will have made all their own small goods so they'll have made haggis black pudding sausages stuffing you know pies you know all these value-add products would have been commonly made in most butcher shops because it's a way of adding value, but also utilizing 100% of the animal. If you're buying and selling primal cuts of lamb, beef, pork, chicken, you know, bacon, ham, you're always going to have trimmings. You're going to have manufacturing grade quality meat that, you know, you can't sell as mince or dice stewing cuts. There's always a bit of a bit of leftovers that is what we would call trim. And that in the main would get turned into pies, sausages, burgers, haggis, black pudding, you see. So there's always been that need to have a revenue stream from that byproduct. And in the early days, that's, you know, we sold lots of lambs, lots of beef, lots of pig. You'd have used the offal that came from that, the sloshing of those animals. Because once you slaughter, you buy animals off the hoof, you get everything basically but the hide, because that then typically would go to a tanner. So you wouldn't get the fleece from sheep. You wouldn't get the hide from cattle. You'll get the skin on pigs because that's how pork's sold. And that's what gives you the crackling on your roast pork. All the offal keeps. And that would have got turned into haggis, for example. It's just when we started really diversifying back in the 80s, when we could see that supermarkets were really getting a, a grip hold of the high street, that we started diversifying. One of the things that we thought we could you know, exploit was our, our haggis manufacturing capabilities. And that's why we're now more of a household name for haggis and black pudding and vegetarian haggis, which is another story, than butchers, because you know, there's less and less butchers, more people are buying their meat in supermarkets. And we just decided that we didn't want to try and compete in that fiercely competitive market and diversified and moved out of red meat butchery and moved into mass manufacturing. And haggis, I guess maybe we should do a kind of myth busting session on haggis because there's a lot of kind of misconceptions and myths out there. So would you be up for a, a few yeah, fire away. some myths. First of all, I think let's start with the basics. What is actually haggis? Because, you know, you get some people that think, oh, it's just full of guts. Yep. Is that right? Traditionally, it's not full of guts. It would have been stuffed into a gut. I think that's the, the one myth to bust. A real traditional haggis. There's a picture of my dad holding. Oh, yeah. You can see that. 
he's holding a, a ceremonial haggis, and that is being filled into a washed sheep stomach. Washed sheep stomachs aren't as readily available as they once were. We now use a, a beef sausage casing. So it's the same sort of casing that you would see around a very traditional salami or a mortadella or a, a chorizo. You know, it's a natural piece of intestine that has been processed suitable to have meat filled into it. Like a real sausage casing, which are typically lamb and pork, beef casings are typically a wider caliber, and then they make a bigger sausage or a bigger salami or a bigger mortadello. And that's what we use for our traditional range of, of haggis. So they've not got guts. They've got awful in them. Awful is the organs. Now in the UK, there's no steadfast rule as to what has to go into a haggis. It is traditionally made with offal, which is lamb, liver, heart, kidney, lung, and some fat, oatmeal, onion, seasoning, spices. And that's a very broad description as to what goes in them. Some manufacturers use pork, some use lamb and beef, You know, some use all pork. We make a couple of haggis, we make a pork and beef haggis for one of our customers, and then we make a lamb and beef haggis for ourselves. And then for export, we make an all lamb haggis because we have to get around some of the export legislation to get into places like Canada and Singapore. So as I said, it's a kind of underlying base recipe, but it's not heavily prescribed. And it makes good use of all the animal as well. Is Absolutely. It quite a sustainable it's product then. Very sustainable product. You know, from a kind of carcass utilization or a mass balance, haggis is incredibly sustainable because there's very few avenues for the offal to get used in food production. And if you look at the kind of hierarchy of food, you, you want to try and utilize all of the value of the food into human food consumption. So all the hard work of the farmers, the primary processors, the guys and girls that rear the lambs, pigs, beef herds, it's essential that they, we get every penny of value out of that. And butchers, as I said earlier, use all of the leftovers to either make their sausages or haggis or black pudding. So it's a very sustainable dish and we need to eat more haggis to make sure that it remains as sustainable as it is today, tomorrow. And another myth, if you want to clarify, which is one that I find quite shocking, I'm not sure if other people are aware of this, but is haggis actually Scottish? Shock horror, you're absolutely <laughs> right. It's not. It's not originally Scottish. So... Until I met a woman called Clarissa Dixon Wright back in 1995 or 1996, our family always thought that haggis came to Scotland via the Romans. She was of a different opinion. She thought that the Vikings brought haggis to Scotland. So still a very, very long time ago. And, you know, there's probably a, a bit of truth in both. So no, haggis is not originally Scottish. Haggis is actually an international dish. It's just not necessarily called haggis in all the countries that still have a food dish like haggis. Like I said, where you see roughly cut meats with some sort of cereal and seasoning, whether it's a chorizo or a slautur or a lungimos or a fajuada, that admittedly isn't filled into casing, but that's a Norwegian, Icelandic and Brazilian style of meat product that is made with the offal. These are sort of haggis style dishes that are internationally recognized. And not every nation in the world still eats a food like haggis, but some do. You know, and, and Scotland, fortunately, 
has really taken responsibility for owning haggis and will even call it Scotland's national dish, you know, and, and I'm fiercely proud of that. And that fortunately comes down to, to Robert Burns writing a poem about it and the nine men that recognised his greatness five years after him dying and had a Burns supper and they ate haggis at it. I think if Burns hadn't written the poem and the guys hadn't had the Burns supper, we still might not be eating haggis to this day. So there are some other things that had to have happened for us still to now have haggis as Scotland's national dish. That being said, there is a reference in a cookery book going back to the time of King Richard II, which is in the early 1300s, called A Form of Curry. And there was a reference in that book to something that either looked like a haggis or a sausage. So that being said, if Shakespeare had decided to write a few words and he could have written an ode to a haggis, <laughs> the haggis now could be England's national dish. But um, fortunately, Robert Burns delivered on to a haggis and he, the rest. He got, he got there first. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, we'll chat about Rabbi Burns in a little bit. But another myth, I suppose, just to clarify as well, is about how healthy haggis is or is haggis healthy food to eat? Haggis is really good for you. It's a great, warming, satisfying food that keeps you full and stops you snacking between mealtimes. And when eaten with potatoes and turnip, it's a great nutritionally well-balanced. We've always said if somebody says, oh, haggis is quite fattening. Well, no, not really. It's fattening as lamb chops and chicken with the skin on. I think there is a place for haggis. And like everything, you know, Everything should be eaten in moderation and it's about having a well-balanced diet. But certainly there's no harm in, in adding haggis to your, your weekly shopping repertoire because it, it is satisfying. And especially in this current economic climate, it's incredibly affordable and you don't need to do an awful lot to it. It's You're buying a, a 400 or 500 gram delicious everyday haggis. All you need to do is warm it up and make some neeps and ties. You don't need to do anything else to it because it's pre-minced, it's pre-cooked, it's pre-flavoured and you just warm it up and have it with neeps and ties and it's incredibly satisfying and I never get tired of eating haggis. The original ready meal, basically. It, well, <laughs> that, yes, one of my other, it's the original boil in the bag ready meal. Yeah. Uh, you know, it really is. We've done all the hard work to make it easy for you because you know, if, if you ever thought about making haggis from scratch, it's quite a daunting task. It would be an interesting kind of ready steady cook challenge oh, yeah. my haggis from raw today as I will fair play to you and of course the the offal is quite high in nutrients vitamins and minerals so yeah um, there's good. a range of lots of minerals yeah good good source of protein good source of fiber as you say everything in moderation and just got to have it along with some leaps and tatties and and it can fit well inside a, a kind of balanced diet Quick question, what is the plural of haggis? It's haggis. It's it a collective. Haggis. My wife's an English teacher and she tells me it's a collective noun. So it's like sheep and fish. So it's a haggis. Okay. Good Good to get that clarified. What is the secret for making a good haggis, would you say? For me personally, it's consistency. These days where we sell the majority of our haggis through the supermarkets, you want a haggis that is consistently the same. You want customers to feel satisfied and confident to grab a, a haggis off the shelf and not have to worry about what it's going to taste like. And that's something that we've always thought about and always had in the back of our minds because my grandfather used to talk about a Mars bar haggis and until he explained to me what it was, I thought that sounded like a horrible concept. But he, he said, you know, you know what a Mars bar is going to taste like before you put it into your mouth. And that's what we need to do with our haggis. 
consumers, point of purchase, they know what that tea is going to taste like. They know what the flavor they're going to get, the sensation they're going to get, the the comfort they're going to get from that hot plate of haggis leaps and tatties. And, and it's our job to make sure that our recipe is consistently the same and we deliver, you know, a consistent recipe day in, day out. And there is a haggis spice mix. Is it a particular type of mix or just other particular spices in it? We blend all our own seasonings on site. So we buy in bags, 25 kilogram sacks of pure spice and whether that's peppers or spices, clearly I can't tell you the, the recipe or I would need to kill you. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we blend all our seasonings on site and we blend them to a, a very old family recipe. The blend of seasoning has never changed in nearly 70 years, I can say. And that's done on site by the guys in the spice room who weigh it and sieve it, prepare every batch. And those spices are, you know, again, historic. And and for other manufacturers, you know, the part of the reason that we have such a, an interesting culture of food, you know, if, if you look at the spice trade and and the, even the British Empire is, is responsible for a lot of the food that we eat to this day. And the seasonings that we have historically in our store cupboard is because of those two events. And haggis makers, you know, choose what they think is the best spices to complement the raw materials that they're putting into their haggis. So like I said, everyone's different. We've got a kind of steadfast recipe of peppers and spices and we stick to it. Now, you mentioned earlier, there's an obvious connection with Rabbi Burns. Haggis is the centerpiece, if you like, of the Burns supper, having haggis, neeps and tatties. And you mentioned the connection that it was the Rabbi Burns poem to a haggis. Can you yep. explain a little bit more about what happens at Burns supper and what role does a haggis have? A burn supper is is a celebration of Robbie Burns, and you know there's a, a tremendous amount of ceremony surrounding the event. Traditionally, there used to be all men events. Even in my lifetime, I did go to a burn supper that was just men, all men, no dancing. It was sounds a bit boring. Well, yeah, yeah it was. But my dad said, "Oh, you must come to this burn supper. You know, the world is changing and." They are turning more into Scottish evenings and, you know, men typically now bring their partners and wives and there's dancing and so on. But they're probably, to be honest, they're more fun. I mean, certainly I've been to a lot of Burns suppers over the years, but it's predominantly all about Robert Burns. There will be haggis, there will be toasts, there will be people talking about and immortalising Robert Burns. People recount what Burns means to them or what Burns meant in society at that time or what would Burns be like today if there's a lot about a reflection around Burns. There's a, a toast to the lasses and a toast to the laddies where a man will say lots of very complimentary things about ladies and how the world would be a worse place without them. And then typically the ladies, it's very tongue in cheek, say, well, the world would be a better place without lots of men. <laughs> so there's a lot of fun and, and humour. There is certainly lots of food and the bill of fare is very important. Very traditionally, you would start with a soup course, usually kokaliki. There would be a haggis course. There's also sometimes another course, which would be more of a main dish, like maybe roast beef. And then there would be a dessert course, which would be trifle or cranachan. These are very traditional foods at burn suppers. There would certainly be quite a bit of whiskey because you are doing a lot of toasts. You toast the lasses, toast the laddies. You'd be toasting burns. You'd be toasting haggis. There would be potentially some bagpipes. And then there would be... A man would stand up, or typically 
in my opinion, a man would stand up because I've not yet seen a woman address a haggis at a burnt supper. And he would recite the poem of To a Haggis, which is one of the, the highlights for me, certainly. The haggis is usually piped in, so there'd be a bagpiper, there'd be a, a chef with a big steaming haggis on his shoulders, and that would get paraded around the room. And then the addresser would recite To a Haggis. And again, there would be some other singing, potentially dancing. You know, it, it really is a, a wonderful evening. And for any listeners that have never been to one next time you're in Scotland or if you see one in your local bar, hotel, restaurant, go along or give it a bash. You will not be disappointed. Burn supper is the 25th of January. Aye. We go throughout the month of January, to be honest. You know, yes, there are some burn suppers that actually happen on the day, but if it's a publicly organised one, they'll be usually at weekends or on Burns Night and they will go on throughout the month of January and sometimes into February because there's only so many artists that can sing the songs and recite the poetry and and fulfil the roles that are required at a burn supper that they're in short supply and and very popular and that's why they, they roll into February. So imagine this time of year, you'll be ramping up production. Am I right? Is this the main time of year that everyone eats haggis or the only yeah. time of year, is it? Well, we do have a business that manufactures haggis 52 weeks a year and there now is 52 week of the year haggis consumption. When we first set about coming to Lone Heads, haggis wasn't available in supermarkets all year round. If it was, it might only be in Scotland. It certainly wasn't all year round in England where it is now. Not all supermarkets sold it. And we thought that there was a gap in the market for 52 week haggis consumption. So we, we set about speaking to supermarkets going, if we could bring this product to market, would you buy it? And most of the retailers said yes. So we set apart building a haggis factory and marketing our products appropriately and started supplying to the, the supermarkets and wholesalers and food service operators. And we took a business that was, we were doing 235 tonnes back in 1996 and we're doing over, well, nearly 2,000 tonnes a year now. So that, you know, the business has grown exponentially in the time that have been in Lone Head because haggis isn't just for burns. Hashtag not just for burns. It is eaten all year round. Predominantly eaten in November, December and January. I would encourage people to eat more haggis because of how satisfying it is and, and how readily affordable it is. But yeah, on, on average, most people eat it for Burns Night or Hogmanay or St Andrews, but it is available all year round. And it's not just eaten in Scotland, it is eaten around the world, oh, I guess. You, do you export haggis we ex- now? We export into Canada, Singapore, the UAE and Germany with meat and vegetarian haggis. And then we do the USA and Hong Kong with some with some vegetarian haggis. And, and then in some cultures, haggis is made locally. You know, Canada and the United States do have you know, domestic haggis manufacturers, you know, usually butchers that are making haggis in addition to what we export. And am I right in thinking that McSween's invented the vegetarian haggis? You've mentioned that a couple of times, but did you start it all? (laughs) We, yes. In short, yes, we did. My dad had a customer called Tessa Ranford, who was the creator of the Scottish Poets Library, And back in January 1984, she approached my dad and said, listen, we're opening the new library, which is just off the Royal Mall, would like in January, would like to have some haggis at it. And I've got some friends that are vegetarian and I would like you to try and supply me with a vegetarian haggis. And I think at the time my dad was up for the challenge and he threw something together for the opening of the library. 
And the, the opening of the library and the vegetarian haggis got as much press as each other. And then dad started receiving letters as to where consumers could buy this vegetarian haggis. And my dad, being the serial entrepreneur he was, he thought, right, okay, I think there's a sale at the end of all of this. And he set about formulating the recipe from a kind of one-off haggis to, to scale it up to something that we could make more viable and make commercially. And he spent most of the spring and the summer doing lots of product development. And then by the autumn, I think by the August or the September, we launched the Vegetarian Haggis. And that was the world's first commercially available vegetarian haggis in, in 1984. Now, what we did is we went vegetarian and vegan at day one because he found a vegetable fat to, as a substitute to animal fat or beef fat. And that was the real stumbling block was to try and get the succulence in the vegetarian haggis that it would eat very in a very similar way to the meat haggis to get the right blend of seasonings and also to get the right kind of texture that it was simulating a, a meat haggis. But he, he mastered it and it's rarely changed since 1984. The only thing we've, we took out was the chop makes nuts back in 2012 and we substituted those with sunflower seeds and pumpkin seeds. And that's really the only change. But yeah, it's, it, you know, it's an established product now. It's been going for nearly 40 years. So and very tasty as well. I've tried it very, quite a few uh, times. It's very tasty and it's it's great just on its own. It's great used as a stuffing. It's great used, you know, when you're wanting to make other dishes with it. We have it a lot with roast chicken and we either stuff the chicken with it or we roast the vegetarian haggis underneath the chicken. It's a great accompaniment. So, yes, it's very, very versatile. And, you know, haggis and black pudding, vegetarian haggis are, are equally as versatile. If you just think of them as a, a pre-spiced and cooked protein, you can blend it with things to make burgers or meatballs or use it like you would use sausage meat to make pies and sausage rolls. You can break up a haggis and put it over a plain cheese and tomato pizza and, and make a, a haggis pizza, you know, make nachos, put it in a baked potato, thicken up a stew or casserole, add some extra protein to a pretty washed out tomato soup. The versatility of haggis is fantastic. There's even a, a recipe book isn't there, on different yeah. recipes for haggis or how to use it? My sister wrote a book, The Haggis Bible, and there's 50 recipes in The Haggis Bible of all different ways to to make dishes with haggis. It's a fantastic little book. And, you know, it's, as I said earlier, it's not just for burns. You know, it's it's about if you want to experiment and, and try haggis different ways. You know, for example, a frittata is a great way that we have haggis because it works so well, or nachos or beans on toast, baked potatoes, Open top sandwiches with grated cheese and mango chutney is one of my favourites. Yeah, it's endless. Right. No, it sounds very versatile. And I guess one of the myths as well, maybe, is that haggis often takes a long time to cook. But that would be a myth, would you say? Because you're quite an innovative company and you've got quite a few different products now. And you don't, you know, the old days where you used to have to cook a haggis, before microwaves, yes, you had to steam a haggis either wrapped in foil in a pan of simmering water or you would put it in a casserole dish with a cup full of water and, and bake it. You know, the, those are still some of the best ways to do it because it's a gentler cook. And we just had haggis. We had some friends up from London at the weekend. There was 12 of us and we all had haggis, sleeps and ties for tea. And for the, some of them, it was the first time they'd ever eaten haggis, sleeps and ties. They loved it. I just warmed the haggis up in the oven because we were you know, cooking so many haggis. But if it's just the family, you want a quick tea, have a haggis, take it out of the casing, chop it into little bits, put it in a microwavable bowl, warm it up in the microwave according to cooking instructions, fork it up so it's nice and fluffy and, you know, just serve it with, if you're being super easy, pre-bought mashed potatoes and mashed neeps. 
you've got tea in under 10 minutes or, you know, do it in the in the oven or buy our haggis in a hurry packs, which is 130 grams of haggis. Again, it's all pre-cooked and take it out the cobbler sleeve and, and in 60 seconds, you'll have hot haggis in two convenient little 65 gram slices. There's a variety of different pack formats for different types of consumers. You know, we try to, to give consumers choice to try and make their haggis consumption as easy and as versatile as possible. Yeah, it sounds like there's so many ways to say enjoy haggis and to experiment and different products. And yeah, it's definitely not just for burns. So truly versatile product. Because this is a Food Connections podcast, what food would you say apart from haggis? Because I think that would be a given. So you're not allowed to say that. But what food would you say you enjoy eating the most? Or do you have a favourite meal or a favourite food memory that you'd like to share? Wow. Oh, there's so many. I love food. It would have to be pasta. It's probably one of my top favourite go-to meals with or without haggis. But we're fortunate to be in Italy in the summer and we, we had some fantastic pasta when we were there, whether we're eating in or eating out. But yeah, it's one of my favourites is, is pasta. Very comforting food, isn't it? Yeah. And and again, it's the versatility of pasta because it's only when you go to Italy, you realise, oh my God, these guys are fanatical about pasta. Because if you go into a big supermarket in Italy, the amount of dry pasta, it's the equivalent of going down a UK breakfast cereal aisle. There's a whole aisle just on dry pasta and the amount of shapes of pasta is incredible. They all mean something and so on and get used for different recipes. With every different pasta, you can then put a different sauce with it, which again, I like the versatility because I like eating different things. Brilliant. Sounds good. And I take it you'll be going to a burn supper at some point or a few of them. Have you got a few lined up? I have one lined up at the moment, which I am addressing the haggis, which is down in London. I have a good friend called Cyrus Toddy Waller. I'm sure your listeners will have heard of him. He's a Indian celebrity chef and we've been supporting his charity burn supper for, oh, it must be over a decade now. So that's on 27th of January down in the London Docklands. He's got a new restaurant, so we'll be down there. And that's it at the moment. So yeah, quite quiet this year, which is good because some years you're all over the place. But I know that some other things will come out of the woodwork. I'll get asked to address the haggis and with some of my customers in some of their stores. So I get kind of carted about, but that's all part of the job. So you have to get the, the kilt looked out and oh, the kilt, get, get kilt, sorted. The, I, the, the kilt is out. The kilt never goes oh, away. Right. I, I don't really wear a suit. You know, if I'm going down to see customers, I'll I'll put my kilt on. There's been times I haven't worn my kilt and then the bars are like, where's the kilt, James? You know, I was looking <laughs> forward to you coming in your kilt. I was like, okay. Um, Nobody's recognised yeah. you. <laughs> well, the, you know, I think they're buying haggis from... Max Sweden's, you know, it kind of goes without saying that James will wear his kilt. So yeah, there is an expectation. Well, thank you so much for your time, sharing all your knowledge and thank you for the myth busting as well. That's been really enlightening. It's been my pleasure. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Thank you for such interesting and varied questions. And, you know, I I do get up every day to make the world's greatest haggis and, and we're fiercely proud of what we do. We're delighted that we're such an award-winning brand and and we are we have the title of making scotland's most loved haggis so i enjoy doing what i do i enjoy sessions like this i enjoy meeting consumers when they tell me when they first had their first haggis and how much they enjoy eating my product so yeah long may that continue it is such a fascinating product and definitely one to enjoy thank you very much very welcome thank you thanks for listening to this food connections podcast 
do check out the show notes for some great links related to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you could give it a rating and leave a short review. And please do spread the word and tell others about it. If you have any comments or suggestions for future guests, do get in touch. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.